You're listening to What the History, a podcast where two nerds talk about some awesome, crazy, random stuff you probably don't remember learning about, but you're going to now. Hey, nerds, it's Casey and Sarah. We're here with another episode. Um, This time, we're going to talk to you about the Harlem Renaissance. So I know last week we did a part one, but we decided to take a little break before we do part two on the history of childbirth. Yeah, Um, it was heavy. Yeah, (laughs) and do something in some ways lighter, I guess. A little bit more like cultural focus, more fun stuff in there. Yeah. I realized as I was researching, I was like, this is not as fun as I thought it would be. Like just some of the general stuff. Yeah. And then additionally to the not as fun part, this is our (laughs) disclaimer that A, we're two very white girls. So white. And we realized during research that we are going to have to say um, the word Negro very often during Mm -hmm. this, which Mm -hmm. is not a word any of us use on a regular basis. No. And is is not necessarily like a bad word, but is a word you're not really supposed to use when you're as white as we are. Yes. Um, So kind of a weird uh, spot for that. We both do want to die about it a little bit. Oh, yeah. But... (laughs) But it is the appropriate word to use and the name of a lot of very specific things in the Harlem Renaissance. And so we don't want to omit what things were called or the language they were using. So yeah. know that when we're using it, we are quoting something of some mm-hmm. sort. Mm-hmm. Um, it is in quotation marks basically everywhere. Yeah. Um, And please don't cancel us. And hopefully you can hear the discomfort in our voices and the silence that follows every statement just because. It's- yes. But again, it's like what you said. We can't like not tell or teach black history. Right. And like not say it because it makes us uncomfortable. Like how fucking white is that? Yeah. Like that is what they called things at the time. And so that's what we're going to call them. Yeah. But we're conscious of the fact that that's kind of a gray area. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. So All right, cool. We're starting off super light, super fun. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) So yeah, the Harlem Renaissance took place between the 1920s and 1930s. And essentially, it was a massive cultural and intellectual revival of African American music, dance, art, fashion, literature, theater, and politics that exploded in Harlem, Manhattan, New York City. Uh, The time, like we now know it as the Harlem Renaissance today, but at the time it was actually referred to as the, quote, New Negro Movement, end quote. That's... I'm the first one to... Well, no, technically Sarah said it by giving the, the heads yeah, up. Yeah, I had... So. <laughs> if I was vague about what word it was, it was going to sound like it was a different word that we definitely yes. aren't going to say. Correct. And so I had to just come out and tell you what the word was. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's totally fair. Um, So the name The New Negro Movement came from a 1925 anthology that was edited by Elaine Locke called The New Negro, which according to scholars was thought to be like the definitive text of the movement movement itself. So something I didn't know, because again, this is kind of the shit that gets like glazed over. You get like a couple days in class to learn about it in American history. But the movement itself wasn't just located in Harlem. It actually spread to other urban areas across the Northeast and the Midwest, which was very much due to the continued and renewed struggle of African-Americans, especially in the wake of the segregation of the United States military in World War One, the great migration of African-American workers, uh, which I'm going to talk 
in pretty good detail about um, who were fleeing the racist conditions created by the Jim Crow laws of the Deep South. So it was not something that just took place in Harlem, though Harlem was like, I don't want to call it the hotbed because that's like a pandemic word. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> ep- nope, epicenter sounds worse. Oh, God. The um, center. Oh, the center. Yeah. Thank you. Center seems fine. <laughs> I feel like those words were fine pre-COVID, right? Like, it's not just me? Or was that always, like, a disease thing? I don't know. I Epicenter, I'm not... Epicenter just sounds like epidemic, but that's not true. Yeah. It's, epi means other <sighs> things. I, I don't know. Everything's know. ruined. Oh, fuck. Everything sucks. Okay. So Harlem was the heart. That's it. The heart of the renaissance so fun fact the harlem renaissance also inspired black writers from african and caribbean colonies who were living in paris at the time so even in paris in the 20s and 30s people were hearing about um, and were being influenced by the african americans in harlem Uh, some scholars argue that the harlem renaissance never actually ended and instead it continues to be a significant a significant cultural force in the u.s throughout the decades specifically in music So when you look at things like jazz, blues, into the progression of rock and roll, soul, disco, and eventually hip hop, a lot of scholars say like the Harlem Renaissance is still very much alive if you look at the just continuation of um, black artists and things like that. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. So here's where we get to talk about some really fun shit. Yay. Not. Mm -hmm. Um, So not. (laughs) What is that from? I don't know. The 90s? Oh, I think it's no, it's probably the 90s, but I think it's from the Pink Panther, which I think Oh, maybe. For. Anyway, so up until the end of the Civil War, the majority of the African-American population in the United States was enslaved and living in the South. So it wasn't until the Reconstruction era, directly following the Civil War, that the emancipated African-Americans were able to actively seek out and fight for like legitimate civic participation, political equality, and economic and cultural establishment. Hopefully that's like not a surprise to anybody listening, but right. it's worth repeating in order to like set the stage for what's kind of happening at the time. Yeah. So in 1871... Something called the Ku Klux Klan Act was passed. Okay. Okay. So when I first. Is it and bad again, that I'm like, I don't know which way that goes? No. And I was literally <laughs> just going to say what's fucking annoying is that even though I teach history, it has been a hot minute since I've done anything having to do with American history. And the first time when I was like reading through it, th- through this and did my research, I was like, what the fuck is the Ku Klux Klan yeah, Act? Like, like, I know we're a fucked up country, but could, like, yeah, it's literally 50-50 without me reading on in your notes. It could mm-hmm. be an act about the KKK being bad, mm-hmm. or it could be an act about the KKK being good, and I genuinely yeah. have no clue. Yeah, no, I literally felt the same way because i was i was shocked that it was called that but fortunately it was actually the third uh like legislative act that was passed um in a series of enforcement acts so basically these enforcement acts were designed to eliminate the violence that was being committed against african-americans okay and what's interesting is like So the 14th Amendment had defined citizenship and given due process and equal protection under the law for all. Okay, obviously, we know that the KKK continuously used violence and manipulation and all this other shit against African-Americans to basically like undermine that. Mm -hmm. Um, They also used that type of violence and undermining against um, like white allies of African-Americans. But I literally wrote who gives a shit about them. They're still white, so they'll be fine. Um, So the KKK Act was a bill that basically stated that the president had the authority to intervene by suspending habeas corpus, deploying the U.S. military, 
or use, quote, other means as he may deem necessary, quote, okay. in the, quote, former rebel states, quote, that attempted to deny, quote, any person or any class of persons of the equal protection of the laws or of equal privileges or immunities under the laws, quote. So okay. basically, if you couldn't see through the quotes, <laughs> uh-huh. the president can pretty much do whatever they need to do. They said he, I'm going to say they, right, uh, need to do in order to prevent people's like rights laws privileges being taken away because of the color of their skin right in theory right like the act was supposed to kind of like cut down on the amount of i guess like violence that was committed by the kkk Mm -hmm. um but what started to happen is the democrat and this is like where it gets kind of weird too so the democratic party was primarily in the South, and the Republican Party was primarily in the North. But we have to think of the Republicans and Democrats as, like, the opposite. Yeah, they, like, reversed at some point. Yes, and I actually think that would be a cool episode, because I don't remember when that was, and I don't really know why. Yeah, and I think there was, like, two different times. Yeah, like, flipped and then flipped back and flipped again. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, Yeah, it was, like, kind of a mess. I just know that people try and be like, Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. And I'm like, well, A, it was backwards then, and B, I'm probably not going to vote for Abraham Lincoln today. Right. (laughs) Like, (laughs) that's exactly it. Like, first of all, you can't even vote for a dead guy. Second of all, it has nothing to do with anything. Even if, like, if you showed me his platform today, I probably don't like it. He had the one good thing. Yeah, and even that he was—he did that like grudgingly. He was yes. like, "Oh, fine, we'll like, fucking free the slaves." Like, yeah, it was, it was on paper good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so he's not exactly like my favorite political figure of all time or something. I don't even know if I have a favorite political figure minus it's Elizabeth probably Warren. Bernie Sanders. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> I do, and that's it's true. Elizabeth Warren. It's that's a good one too. I'll go to war for her. Um. <laughs> Um, so during the mid to late 1870s, racist whites organized in the Democratic Party launched a murderous campaign of racist terrorism in order to regain the political power that they lost throughout the South right after the Civil War during that period of Reconstruction. And so from 1890 to 1908, pretty much once the how do I put this pretty much once the former Confederate rebels licked their wounds enough to be like okay well let's just make this a living fucking hell for everybody right um they started to pass legislation that continuously disenfranchised most african americans and many poor whites but again nobody gives a shit Mm -hmm. trapping them without representation and they established these like white supremacist regimes under the jim crow segregation in the south um they also had like one party block voting that was like behind southern democrats so there really was very little opportunity for any type of legitimate political growth because of the amount of like manipulation that the Democrats were using in the system. The politicians were mostly either former enslavers or political and military leaders of the failed Confederacy. So they were really out to get specifically the African-American population, mostly because that was the most vulnerable population in the South that they could target. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that they really couldn't actively target like republicans as much as Mm -hmm. they could like the former enslaved you know american citizens so they made it more challenging to exercise their civil and political rights they terrorized um black community communities through various forms of vigilante violence such as lynch mobs which we have actually talked about Mm -hmm. and this is pretty much the same time as um ida b wells 
um, kind of coming out to talk more about like lynch mobs and things like that. So this is kind of all falling within that same uh, time frame. Uh, they also instituted a convict labor system in the South that forced many thousands of African-Americans back into unpaid labor in mines, on plantations, and on public works projects such as roads and levies. Levies? Levies. Levies. I think. Like Dan Levy? Yes. Oh, okay. The only okay. reason I think that is the song, like, um, American Pie drove the Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Oh, my God. I love that song. Yeah. So I'm assuming that if you make it plural, it's still. It's Levy. Yeah. You're right. It's Levy. But I don't also, know why yes, I said like Levy. Da- also, yes, like Dan Levy. Uh, love him. Um. So back to this really depressing fucking fact. Convict laborers were frequently subjected to brutal forms of corporal punishment, overwork, and disease from the unsanitary conditions, um, understandably leading to incredibly high death rates. So just a quick little blurb about this. If you have ever seen the um, Netflix documentary, I think it's was 13. Yeah. 13 this or 13th. Something like that. Yes. It's something 13 related, either with a th or without a th. Uh-huh. Regardless, it's this is exactly what it talks about. It talks about not just the for-profit um, like prison system. It talks about how in the 13th Amendment, it specifically states that anybody who is like a free non-criminal, essentially, um, can't be treated like an enslaved person would. So like they can't, you know... Let me rephrase that. People who are convicted of crimes, according to the 13th Amendment, are not entitled to the same freedoms as citizens. So what started to happen in the South specifically, and it will happen in the North too, because racism is not just this fucking Mason-Dixon line thing, is that people started to find specific crimes and reasons to imprison African-Americans in order to put them back into the unpaid labor scenario that they had just literally come out of all past tense of course Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right (laughs) so like that's and that's like the whole documentary talks about it it's fucking phenomenal if you haven't watched it seriously go see it it's yeah it's on netflix i'm pretty sure it's still there because i think netflix like produced it yeah i think it's like a netflix original or whatever yeah it's i mean it's depressing as fuck but it's really really important to it's it's by what's her name ava duvernay Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. she did it and she's great yeah phenomenal stuff um and it's important to know because the language that's used in our own like fucking constitution and shit is like so specific and it's worded that way for a reason so there was a small number of african americans who were able to acquire land shortly after the civil war most of them however were exploited as sharecroppers which just made their living conditions pretty much the same as it was before um they were emancipated and so as life in the South becomes increasingly difficult, African-Americans begin to migrate north in really, really massive numbers, which is why it's called the Great Migration uh, Northward. Many in the Great Migration actually end up becoming like leading creators and thinkers of the Harlem Renaissance because a lot of them had vivid and distinct memories of the atrocities that I had just mentioned, right? And a lot of them had parents, grandparents, or even they themselves had experienced it, had been enslaved, and had this part of their I don't want to say part of their identity because their trauma is not their identity, but it was a part of their experience of life. And so when they left the South in search of a better standard of living and just general relief from the blatantly institutionalized racism, as opposed to the less obvious institutionalized racism in the North, they kind of took with them these experiences. And that's where a lot of their creations come from. Mm -hmm. There were actually others that came from Caribbean communities as well, which I didn't know. 
but that was also a big thing too. Um, so that's kind of like the background setting the stage for like what the Harlem Renaissance was or how it became that way. In terms of development and it being actually recognized as a movement, Harlem, this is actually really cool. I didn't know this. Um, <laughs> this feels kind of like an interesting like fuck you to the wealthy white people of New York City. Mm-hmm. So Harlem was a destination for migrants from around the country and even international immigrants during the early portion of the 20th century. So the area was supposed to be developed like in the early 1800s as an exclusive suburb for like the white middle and upper middle classes. So in Harlem, you have the things like these really stately houses, these beautiful avenues, these like world class facilities built like the Harlem Opera House, the polo grounds, like shit that like wealthy white people in the 1800s fucking ate for breakfast. Right. Yep. But (laughs) but the area attracted too many European immigrants in the late 19th century and the district was basically abandoned by the white middle and upper class and they were like fuck this I was too about many to immigrants. call it reverse gentrification but I think that's just white flight it is but also but- it, they're like fleeing from other white people <laughs> I was just going to say it, but they were, and that's why I was like laughing. I was like, oh no, it was like, they're fleeing from other people that are just like them. Just yeah, that now are considered the same. Exactly. Um, so I thought that was kind of so interesting. And so they felt like they had to move further north because it was no longer like an exclusive district. Mm. So because of that, there was like a really big like increase of people who continued to basically seek homes there and start lives there and so in terms of like the people who arrived you have obviously the european immigrants that i mentioned but you also have african americans who are leaving the south who are specifically seeking work and a combination of that and people who are of the educated class in terms of african americans and a a growing black middle class so like you have all of these like not necessarily abject poverty kind of classes but you have like working class an educated class a middle class all starting to converge in the same area. So by 1910, Harlem started to shift into like an African-American neighborhood after a large block along 135th Street and 5th Avenue was bought by different African-American realtors and a church group. So like once they kind of bought out this huge section of Harlem, that kind of increased the influx of African-Americans moving there specifically. In addition to that, we have World War One happening just a few years later. So many more African-Americans arrived during that. And because of the war, the migration of laborers from Europe pretty much stopped completely. So like nobody was leaving Europe to come over to the United States. So there was a lot more opportunities for jobs, for living situations in a place where traditionally European immigrants would have like come to. Right. So then the war effort also resulted in a massive demand for unskilled industrial labor. And the Great Migration brought hundreds of thousands of African-Americans to cities like Chicago, Philadelphia, Detroit, and of course, New York, which then helped them fill the massive demand for labor. Of course, it's not just white Americans that are bullshit racists. And despite the fact that the, quote, Negro culture was gaining increasing popularity, racism was continuing to affect the African-American community, this time by the recent like ethnic immigrants who had come over from Europe. So like now the European immigrants are like, oh, we're white. We're still better than you. Mm -hmm. And also like this is going to help us kind of like other ourselves from you and be more like the basically the wealthy white quote unquote elites that like peace the fuck out when they showed up. Yeah. So once World War One ends, a lot of African-American soldiers who fought in segregated units, such as the Harlem Hellfighters, which was the coolest fucking name. I was like, that's great. 
sick. They returned basically to this nation whose citizens like had zero respect for any of their accomplishments and sacrifices. And so that's increasing a lot of tension for African-Americans. And on top of that, we have these like massive race riots and civil uprisings that are starting to occur throughout the United States, which again, I'm pissed that I never fucking learned that. Right. I think what's frustrating is like to get on another soapbox for three seconds Mm -hmm. is like people are like, oh my God, we're 20 minutes into this. She's on her fourth fucking soapbox. (laughs) Like, I think when we talk about race today, people are like, I don't understand. Like, why isn't this shit over? And it's like, well, if we had learned about like yeah. the race riots in the nineteen you know tens, the aughts, whatever. Yeah, we probably would have been like, oh fuck, like this is a really continuous issue that never got really addressed. Right. Um, and I think that these specific instances, like the Red Summer of nineteen nineteen, which is like a super scary and ominous name, mm-hmm. the the anti black riots developed because of post World War One tensions that were related mostly to like an economic slump and increased competition in the job and housing markets. Right. So like. When we think about today, when we think about things like reparations, when we think about things like this fear, I think, that white people have of, like, losing power, it's it's kind of repeated here where it's, like, people are afraid, like, if they're going, like, there's a competition that it's, like, there's only so much pie. Yeah, and, like, I was going to say the pie thing. Mm-hmm. Like, if you and, get like, more, I get less. Exactly. And that's, like, a very real fear between, like, whites and like black Americans at this time, which is like what increases those tensions. Right. Um, the other thing which is super shitty is that African Americans were commonly used as strike breakers whenever there was oh. like white labor unions fighting for more rights and going on strike. Yeah. But like they basically, you know, business owners, whatever fucking capitalists, whatever you want to call it, like used those like racial tensions to just like make shit worse. Yeah. So, which brings us to the first stage of the Harlem Renaissance, um, oh which is really interesting. And I was kind of bummed out. And, and you'll find out why. So in 1917, this is there's like two landmark events. So the first is in 1917 with the premiere of Granny Mommy, Maomi, Granny Maomi, oh. the writer of dreams, Simon the Cyrenian plays for a Negro theater took place. Okay. These plays were written by a white playwright named Ridgely Torrance. And were groundbreaking in that they featured African-American actors conveying complex human emotions and yearnings, and they openly rejected the stereotypes that were commonly found in blackface and minstrel show show traditions that had been shown in theater up until this point. Okay. So I was like, what the fuck? A white guy? Like, come on. Yeah, I have some stuff in, like, I think in criticisms about how this somewhat relied on white people in some ways. Yeah, so it's interesting because I kind of dug a little bit further into it and um, James Weldon Johnson was a major African-American civil rights activist who noted the premieres of the plays as being, quote, the most important single event in the entire history of the Negro in the American theater, quote. And I realized after I kind of went on this like mini like tirade of this fucking Ridgely Torrance dude, <laughs> I I realized like in a way it is not in a way, it is white people's job to dismantle the system that we benefit from. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that even back then you have, I don't want to say white voices, but like you have a white person who's saying, hey, this is bullshit. Like black people are fucking people. And right. Well, and like it's like at the time a black person in most cases could not have gotten their play produced. Right. right. So yeah. the only way to get people to see it was to have a white person do it. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously exactly. shitty in its own way. But I guess that's 
Like, that's better than no one doing it. Right. And I think that it's important to, like, I guess, especially for me as I, like, kind of continue to do this, like, internal work is, like, understanding, like, what when is my time to step in and, like, right. do something? And when is my time to shut the fuck up and, like, amplify Black voices? Yeah. So I think that this is kind of, like, I kind of felt a little bit, I don't want to say better, but I was like, oh, you know what? Like, that it's like what you said. There probably weren't many opportunities to have Black playwrights have their work produced yeah um and then on top of that like it it's the job of white people to talk about and destroy the system that we benefit from because you know people of color have been trying to do that for fucking years and like nobody wants to actually do the work because it's the white people that benefit so then in 1919 the communist poet claude mckay published his militant sonnet sonnet titled if we must die which introduced a dramatically political dimension to the themes of African cultural inheritance and modern urban experience. I love the term militant sonnet. It, I know. Like, it's not an oxymoron. That's not what sonnet means, but it feels kind of like one. Totally. But I'm actually going to read the poem. It's going to oh, be one of the last okay. things I do. Um, and it is militant. Like, it's, it's yeah. cool. So, okay. Ooh, I, I, like, got, like, nervous for this. <laughs> I just wanted to no, like, do I actually, justice. I have but... a really short poem in my in oh, my good. next section, and okay. I too was like, "Fuck, I gotta read this poem." <laughs> yeah, I just felt like this was really significant enough to like read yeah. out loud. Um, but again, I'm a 29 year old, very white person, so like it's gonna probably not hit home <laughs> the same way. Um, but I think, like I said, it's worth it's worth hearing. So okay, <clears throat> if we must die. If we must die, let it not be like hogs, hunted and penned in an inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us, though dead. O kinsmen, we must meet the common foe. Though far outnumbered, let us show us brave, and for their thousand blows deal one death blow. What thought what though before us lies the open grave? Like men will face the murderous, cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. So definitely some serious vibes of like yeah. understanding what it's like to kind of shift into, I think, like the the like post-Great Migration. Like, mm-hmm. you know, people are now, like we're now in like an industrial setting and an urban setting and people are still coming after us like they are chasing us like they would have 20 years beforehand. So he actually posted his work under the pseudonym Eli Edwards. Uh, and he was, this was one of his first like appearances in print in the US after he like emigrated, emigrated from Jamaica. And what's really cool is that the poem never al- like actually alludes to race. Like at no point did I say race or anything like that. But the African-American reader's heard its note of defiance in the face of racism and like the nationwide race riots and lynchings that were taking place then and like did something with that and i you know what's funny is as i was just rereading this i got these serious ida b well vibes again i think we might have like she might have said something similar to this i could see that 
Yeah. So by the end by the end of the First World War, the fiction of James Weldon Johnson, the poetry of Claude McKay were describing the reality of contemporary African American life in America, in Harlem. And so the Harlem Renaissance basically begins to grow out of all of the changes that had taken place in the African American community since the abolition of slavery, as the expansion of communities in the North, which accelerated as a result of World War One and major cultural and social changes that occurred in the early 20th century. Uh basically the Harlem Renaissance is going to start to look at the continued journey and struggle of the African-American population and also like look at their moments of joy um, and what things they do experience on top of just, you know, the things that they're they're um, having to struggle with. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So we're going to talk about like a few different specific elements um, of the Harlem Renaissance and kind of what made it up. So I'm going to start and talk about literature and music. And so you just covered a poem um, and a play, which is kind of literature. Um, but obviously that's a big cornerstone. Like if I think of the Harlem Renaissance before research, the person I think of is Langston Hughes. Yeah, is me like too. the name I go to. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, I'm going to go back to, to start with somebody else named Hubert Harrison. So in 1917, a man named Hubert Harrison... who was known as the father of Harlem radicalism. He founded two things, Liberty League and The Voice. So those were respectively the first organization and the first newspaper of the New Negro movement. And he's been described, in addition to like the father of Harlem radicalism being his kind of official name, he's also been described as the Black Socrates and a bunch of other things that basically put him on on this other level of being like at the lead of a lot of especially literature at the time. Yeah. He was also the leading black organizer of the Socialist Party of America. So he was very involved in politics and he talked about a lot of different things. Class consciousness was one of them, obviously, if you're talking about kind of the Socialist Party of America. Mm-hmm. But he also talked about race consciousness among black people. He was also very um, vocally an atheist. So he talked about agnostic atheism. Um, the concept of secular humanism, how that tied in with progressivism and free thought. And he also described himself as a, quote, radical internationalist and was very involved um, in things with the Caribbean radical traditions as well. So he's kind of all over the place, like <laughs> doing yeah, a bunch he's of like, stuff. I was going to say he's like a jack of all trades kind of thing. Like he's got his hand in everything, which is really cool. Yeah, he's like a thinker in a bunch of things. And he kind of at the time had mostly a reputation for being the atheist side of it. Um, A lot of people didn't like him because of that. And he tied together race relations and atheism a lot. And one of the big things he was known for saying is that he would rather go to hell than heaven because Satan and his demons were black while God, Jesus, and the angels were white. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, like he was... Jeez. Yeah, he was... hardcore and so he would like that's giving me some of like fuck what's that rapper oh Lil Nas X is yeah, that it yeah. that's the vibe I'm getting right the, now like call me by your name video yes yes yeah um yeah so he was like very anti-religion as he got older and saw white Christianity as like very tied to oppression he also again very politically active so in 1917 like you mentioned African Americans and other other marginalized groups as well as you know regular old boring white people were asked to quote make the world safe for democracy by fighting during World War II so there's obviously this big call for patriotism right Mm -hmm. to go to the war and win the war But he was like, 
but fuck that, because when we come back here, you're lynching us and we're segregated and there's all this discrimination. And so kind of in response to this call for unity and what he saw as kind of like a fake call for unity, he founded the Liberty League and The Voice as directly as an alternative to the NAACP. So he didn't like that the NAACP was involved in some of these like calls for democracy and unity. And he thought they were very moderate middle of the road. I was just going to say like that they were too moderate. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like they were kind of appealing to white people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he founds The Voice and the Liberty League and The Voice does really well. It ends up circulating about 10,000 people per issue, um, which I guess is good at the time for like a small newspaper. I don't really know newspaper stats, but they said it was good. So sure. (laughs) Um, But it actually only is published for five months because they lose advertisers and they have trouble finding advertisers because Harrison is so staunch about who he will allow to advertise. And so a lot of the advertisers who were at the time willing to advertise in not only a black publication, but like a very radical black publication, Mm -hmm. were actually trying to sell things like hair straightener and skin lightener, because that was something they felt they could sell to like the black community. And he was not willing to take their money. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, that's like the complete fucking opposite of everything that he's like writing. Exactly. So between him refusing advertisers and just generally being bad at financial management, they only only last for five months but it's still kind of considered one of the like jumping off points for a lot of writing and a lot of political commentary and stuff like that um he actually later comes back um in the late 20s and challenges the entire notion of the harlem renaissance like he's not a big yay harlem renaissance type guy um, and I'll talk about criticisms later, but he basically says that the the notion of a, quote, Negro literary renaissance overlooks, quote, the stream of literary and artistic products which had flowed uninterrupted from Negro writers from 1850 to the present. And he said the so-called renaissance was a white invention. So he basically mm. says, like, we've been doing this shit the whole time. You're just, like, only paying attention right now. Mm. Um, and so even though he's considered, like, the father of the Harlem radicalism, here he he is not like a big supporter of this concept of the renaissance right but that's so interesting yeah but so i just wanted to spotlight him but you know there is a larger acceptance of african-american writers at the time Mm. um and by acceptance i mean by white people obviously (laughs) yeah um like langston hughes said you know with harlem came the courage to quote express our individual dark-skinned selves without fear or shame so it's it's kind of both People are willing to read things by Black writers, and also they're able to talk about explicitly about the experience of being Black. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Elaine Locke's anthology, The New Negro. That's kind of considered the literary cornerstone. Yeah. And it features, you know, several people who go on to be really big names. So Langston Hughes, Claude McKay, like you mentioned, and then Zora Neale Hurston is another big name that kind of comes out of this time. She wrote the Their Eyes Were Watching God is kind yes. of her, her biggest known thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, so I'll talk about music in a minute, but jazz poetry also gets developed kind of in tandem with the idea of jazz music. That sounds so fucking yeah, cool. Yeah, and so it's, it's poetry that follows kind of a similar, sometimes you're making it up on the spot or you're combining different things. Right. Um, and some of Langston Hughes' work is considered jazz poetry, but 
it it just kind of comes out of this time as a new form of poetry. Is this like the precursor to slam poetry? Because that's, that's kind of the kind vibe of, I'm getting. That was kind of the vibe I got. Um, I okay. didn't see anything directly say that, but I think it was probably similar to what we might think of as slam poetry, though right. slam poetry is generally all pre-written. True. I, and it's like a, it's almost like performed like a monologue. So yeah. Whereas yeah. I think some of this was improv But, you know, the general consensus, how we think of it now when it's like in our history book for one page is is that through literature, this allowed Black authors to give a voice to their identity and kind of find community support, acceptance, etc. I wanted to, because I, I was thinking about kind of the people I associate with the Harlem Renaissance and what I know, and they're all dudes, right? <laughs> like Langston Hughes, Claude McKay, yeah, a lot of dudes. The, the musicians I'll talk about, you know, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington dudes and so i wanted to i picked a a kind of lesser known woman that i thought i would just talk about for a minute oh that's awesome so there's a poet named ann spencer and i got her name because she was called out as someone being featured in the the new negro anthology but i had never heard of the name so i figured i'd look into her yeah and so she ultimately is like a widely anthologized poet so she's in a lot of different kind of collections at this point and she was actually the first person from virginia and one of only three african-american women included in the norton anthology of modern poetry which is like a big deal it's kind of the universal anthology um so she ended up with kind of a place in history there but she started as so she started as a public school teacher um yeah and one of the things i liked is she brought books from her own collection to share with the class so she would bring in books by black people or books that like shared the experience and be like Okay, you're gonna read this now. It looks like things haven't changed. Yeah, well, that too. But (laughs) public schools still need teachers to get their own. Yes, I think hers was more about what they were giving her sucked. Oh, totally. It was like we're done reading these fucking white authors. We're gonna read about and read work by black authors. Exactly. Um, and so her history, her father had been born into slavery, but was a child when emancipation occurred. So she's kind of part of this generation, like you mentioned, where their parents are some of the first African-Americans sent slavery to not be enslaved, right? So her parents have kind of a, like a one foot in, one foot out almost, right? There's this experience of having been enslaved. There's also an experience of being emancipated. And Uh basically her parents, particularly her father, was very focused on business and success and an education for Aunt. Uh Um, And obviously it was that sort of I don't know, weird ideology, right? Of like, well, we're free and we can do whatever we want, which obviously turned out to not be true. But it was new enough for her father that he had like very high ambitions about it. And actually her parents split up at one point. So she was the only child. So she was like all they cared about, right? And when they split up, they fought over custody. Mm -hmm. And her father threatened to take her from the mother if she wasn't enrolled in school because he was really concerned about her being enrolled in school. She wasn't particularly literate, even though he had tried some with her right um so she gets enrolled in a school called the virginia seminary and there she learns to fully read and write and she starts writing poetry while she's in school she continues to do it throughout her life so she would take any like scrap of paper or page out of a catalog and just kind of jot some things down write some poems and so she talks in some of her poems about race she also talks a lot about nature and kind of relates it to the harsh realities of the world that she's living in um her actual career kind of takes off in 1919 so right in the middle of the harlem renaissance era um she was actually planning to open a chapter of the naacp in lynn 
Uh, as I said that sentence, I was like, mm, why is it called Lynchburg? I... Do I like that? Uh, I'm look that <laughs> okay, I, I saw that and I was like, mm, no. But she actually hosts James Weldon Johnson, who you mentioned, in her home because he's okay. a tr- Yep. It's founded for his, it's named for its founder, John Lynch. Mm-hmm. It has okay. nothing to do with, well, it has nothing to do with, well, I don't think so, but the guy founded it in 1757. And I don't know the history in terms yeah. of timing with lynching, but Fair. I don't think. Yeah, he built, let's see, he started a ferry service across the James River. And so, like, he was, like, a big part okay, of Okay, so I he, guess. like, did good thing. Like, in yeah. theory, a good thing. Right, right. Okay. Well, so she's in Lynchburg and, I already forgot his name, James Weldon Johnson, who you mentioned, is a traveling representative for the NAACP. So he's visiting because she wants to open a chapter. So it's kind of more a political meeting, right? But somehow during this meeting, it comes up that she's a poet and he finds her poetry. He really likes it and he connects her with his own editor. And so her first poem, which was called Before the Feast at Shushan, 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 Sure. Let me look at it. Okay. I should have Sh- Shushan. Shushan. It's in the Bible. I don't know. <laughs> Either way, it's called that. I was the last person that should be helping you with pronunciation. It's fine. Incidentally. <laughs> um, so her first poem, that one, is published on in February of 1920 in an issue of a magazine called The Crisis. And so she's actually 40 years old, the time her first poem was published. Oh, wow. Um, but she goes on, you know, she, she is not primarily a poet. It's not what she's, like, making her money off of. She's still doing political work. And all. She has a son um, who goes on to, to be important um, in, like, the military and some of the segregated, bra- um, not branches, but troops, I guess yeah um but she has about 30 poems throughout the rest of her life that get popular and are well known and she performs them um so most of them are done during the harlem renaissance and they're later anthologized by other poets so she never publishes like a collection of her poetry it's some of them are in magazines and quarterlies and stuff like that and then some of them are just saved later and put into groups of poetry and so i have a short poem of hers yay let's see so this is a poem called requiem okay so it's oh i who so wanted to own some earth am consumed by the earth instead blood into river bone into land the grave restores what finds its bed oh i who did drink of spring's fragrant clay give back its wine for other men breath into air heart into grass my heart bereft i might rest then wow yeah that's beautiful and kind of dark. And... Yeah. So again, nature, relating nature to like shitty things in her life. But yeah, that's kind of similar to a lot of her poems. It reminded me, I was like, it's sad Mary Oliver. That's how I felt about it. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's Ann Spencer. I just thought I would find a woman. And obviously Zora Neale Hurston, I mentioned, is a big one. But I wanted to find someone a little bit lesser, lesser known from the time. And then there's music. And like I said, there's some kind of ties between music and literature in this case, especially poetry, because you have lyricists and it gets turned into poems and poems get turned into songs, etc. Right. Um, but most of the time, if you think of music from the Harlem Renaissance, you think of jazz, which it existed before, um, but it becomes a lot more ubiquitous at the time and a lot more popular. And there's kind of new ways and new versions of jazz that come out. And it's actually got some kind of 
class implications that are interesting. So there's a new way of playing the piano called the Harlem Stride that is Mm. created and popularized at the time. And it actually is said to have like blurred the line between poor African-Americans and the more socially elite African-Americans. And obviously at the time, like socially elite African-Americans are not the equivalent of socially elite white people. Right. But there's still a divide in the community. Uh And so it's it's there. And so you had kind of this traditional jazz band that was mostly brass instruments, was considered very Southern, was kind of the more like grassroots jazz. But the piano is considered an instrument of the wealthy, mostly because they're expensive as fuck, right? Right, right. Yeah. And so by adding in the piano, wealthy African-Americans got kind of access to jazz music. They had a mm. way in because they could play the piano, they could provide the piano, etc. Right. And so with that, it kind of brought the two like musical factions and pieces of the community together and jazz got popular across the country like at an all-time high using both elements that's really cool yeah i thought that was really interesting um obviously at the time kind of like we mentioned before innovation and liveliness are like the big words associated with jazz um doing things off the cuff right adding things in the middle of songs changing it up every time that kind of thing. Um, and those are still foundations for music today. I think you mentioned that kind of turns into, you know, country music and rock and roll and other things that exist today. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's some of the major names out of this time. Duke Ellington. Is it Louis or Louis Armstrong? Mm. Oh, I thought it was Louis Armstrong, but then maybe not. Right. I don't know. Louis. Pronounce. Armstrong. It's Louis. It's Louis. Yeah, apparently it's Louis. Louis Armstrong. Strong. Yeah, my bad. So then who's Lou? What's Louis Armstrong? I don't think anything. Oh, fuck. Are we that white that we've been saying this name wrong the whole time? Probably. In my defense, which is not a defense at all, in one direction, his name is Louis. So I automatically assume it's Louis. I love that you just mentioned One Direction (laughs) with one of the greatest musicians of all time. Like, you said their names in the same fucking context. I mean, yeah. But, like, I was real into One Direction for a time. And so when I see the name... L-O-U-I-S, I pronounce it Louis in my head. Well, I mean, I wouldn't pronounce it Louis because I think of Louis the 16th because I'm trash. It's fine. <laughs> we're both fine. Oh, we're so white. Anyway, he was real big. And you have like Billy Holiday getting started at the time, right? And it's so funny. I don't think of Billie Holiday as that late or early, but I, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. And it, from what I saw, because I saw that name and kind of looked up the years and was like, eh, I don't know about that. And she actually was born like during like right before this time mm-hmm. so she was like little but very inspired and starting out because she started out pretty young right yeah. um and so she's not necessarily making music in the harlem renaissance but i saw her name tied to it a lot yeah. just because she kind of came out of it also Definitely. i was trying to find a girl <laughs> But during this period, so when jazz becomes more popular and various, like, quote, musical style of blacks. Um, <laughs> Jesus. That's, how, this, that that's how it was phrased on Wikipedia. I was like, oh, okay. fucking Wikipedia. Um, but basically, white people start to be like, oh, that's good. I like that. And so you have white composers as well as white, like, novelists and dramatists and poets start to kind of 
take these themes and these musical tendencies, which we see, you know, forever for the rest of time is, yep. is that. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was really common for composers to use poems that had been written by African-American poets in their song and kind of use the rhythms and harmonies and melodies of jazz or blues or spirituals into the concert pieces. What's interesting is I never actually think about white people when I think about jazz or blues or anything like that. Like, like rock and roll, which was also taken from black people. I now think think of of white people. Yes. Or country. Right. Yes. But like, I think that I have always exclusively attributed the like jazz achievements to african-americans i agree um but the way i saw this kind of described was that there was almost a merging where like the way classic music of the time was defined was a combination of like what black people did and then what white people did and i was like i don't really know about that but that's what like literature says i have one more spotlight of this dude named roland hayes who i thought was interesting and so he is actually the first black person to gain recognition as a concert artist. And so he was an American tenor. He was a composer. And one of the things he ended up known for was he had really good like linguistic skills by which they meant he could sing in a lot of different languages. Um, he didn't know the languages, oh. right? Like it's not that he was fluent in French and German and Italian, right, but he could right. sing in them very well. Um, okay. He had kind of learned from opera, and so he was able to sound like he was speaking the language, you know, not like he was just phonetically mimicking it. But basically, earlier, you know, kind of before the Harlem Renaissance era, African-American concert artists were a thing. They performed all the time, but they weren't recorded because the only time that record companies would sign black people is when they would do like a vaudeville type of thing. Mm -hmm. And by vaudeville, they do mean like... Oh, God, what's that word? Minstory. Yeah. Um, You know what I mean? Yes, um, yes. <laughs> and so um, so Roland Hayes, start, he studies music from a young age. He only had a sixth grade education, but he ends up going to Fisk University in Nashville to study music specifically. And he'd kind of gotten this love of music partially from his dad and partially just from like, he took sounds from nature and stuff around him and had always been fairly musical. But his mother really didn't like this. He told... She told him he was wasting money going to school because African-Americans would never make a living from singing, right? That that just wasn't a thing. So it was stupid of him, basically. Mm -hmm. But he goes to this university and he actually, you know, books a couple gigs. Like I said, they were performing. They just weren't getting signed. So they weren't really making money. Um, But in 1915, he premieres in New York City in a series of concerts done by an orchestra leader. But he does his own musical arrangements and tours them from coast to coast. So he spends years performing. But for like these first concerts, he couldn't find a sponsor. He used $200 of his own money to rent out a hall for his recitals. Wow. Oh my God. And the way he earned any money was he toured black churches and colleges because they would pay him. Right. right? Oh, wow. Um, But by November of 1917, so within about two years, every seat in his halls would be sold out. His concerts were always sold out. They were musically a success but they were also financially pretty lucrative so he was getting sponsors at that time who were getting like a return on their investment but the music industry still didn't really care or like consider him a top performer even though he had some of the top sales numbers for concerts Mm -hmm. um and he oh around the 30s which we're getting out of the harlem renaissance a bit but he stops touring in europe where he had actually had better luck because uh it wasn't favorable for him to be there as much and Mm -hmm. he wasn't super politically radical 
really. Um, he'd actually gotten a lot of flack kind of from both sides because during Jim Crow, he would perform at segregated theaters and integrated theaters. Um, and so he would perform to all white audiences and he he got some flack from that for like from political leaders. So it's not that right. he was particularly political. It's just when the 30s came about, he said, I'm not traveling to Europe because I don't feel safe there. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. He does ultimately in 1939. So like 22 years after he starts performing, um, he does sign a record deal with Columbia. So oh, he wow. eventually is one of like the early people of a, of a black concert artist to yeah. get a record deal. But it also takes him 22 years of his career. Right. Um, so I thought he was interesting just because he's not really a jazz musician. He was more of a like opera style singer, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was pretty renowned at the time, like in the community, even though some people didn't like his politics. Um, mm. He was really well known. But still during this time, he doesn't get any kind of deal um, or any recording rights or anything like that. Wow. So that's my other person you haven't heard of. I like that you did that because I feel like we always hear about the same people. Yeah, because I thought I was like Langston Hughes or Neil Hurston. They're cool. Like, they're great. Um, You don't get to be named in Lovey Bohème if you're not cool and great. But (laughs) 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 fuck you, because I'm never going to get that song out of my head now. I hate you so much. Uh, I'm going to have to listen to it later. Oh, yeah. I have this memory of because I got like super into rent when I was like, you know, 13. Yeah, of course, like every fucking other and person. I, yeah, my dad said something once about Langston Hughes, and I was like, oh, Langston Hughes. And he was like so proud that I knew who Langston Hughes was. And I was like, I don't know how to tell you. I have no clue who this person is. I just, I just know, know the lyric. Yeah, he's a lyric in a song in rent. Ugh, <laughs> oh, so good. But anyway, okay. so that is um, <laughs> literature and music. Perfect. So speaking of rent, we're going to talk a little bit about religion. Um, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Which was every 13-year-old white girl's religion in like the early 2000s. Um So Christianity played a major role in the Harlem Renaissance, obviously, and a lot of the writers and social critics discuss the role of Christianity in African-American lives. One famous example is a poem called Madam and the Minister by none other than Langston Hughes. Uh huh. So scholars have noted that this is actually a piece that like reflects the temperature and mood towards religion in the Harlem Renaissance for a lot of people. Um, The best way to sum it up was like, Basically, this like rev- reverend shows up at this woman's house and he kind of like questions her spirituality and basically is like, can you prove to me that you've been acting holy? And the woman's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm not going to show you and justify my religion. So I guess to me, that means like, you know, religion in some cases in the Harlem Renaissance started to be looked at as more of a like something you practice personally. It's like a spirituality. But yeah, so follow me for more in-depth poetry analysis. <laughs> So garbage. Um, so, so in May 1936, uh, a little bit after the Harlem Renaissance, or kind of towards the end, the magazine publication called The Crisis printed a cover story that explained how important Christianity was regarding the proposed union of these three Methodist, like the three largest Methodist churches in 1936. And basically showed this controversial question of unification of these churches. And then like a few years, like, no, actually not a few, 16 years earlier, (laughs) an article titled The Catholic Church and the Negro Priest in the same 
newspaper was published, which kind of like detailed the obstacles that African-American priests faced in the Catholic Church and confronted what it saw as policies based on race that excluded African-Americans uh, from higher positions in the church. My friend Hubert so, Harrison is not going to like this. Yeah, no, <laughs> for sure is he's not. So different forms of religious worship existed during this time because there were some... Okay, so this is kind of how I understood it. There were some racist attitudes, or not some, probably a significant <laughs> amount of racist attitudes. I don't know, because, like, the Abrahamic religions are what? Is that Christianity and Judaism? I think so. So Abraham. there are racist... <laughs> That's the yeah. people who really liked Abraham Lincoln that we were That's what about. I was just thinking. I was like, and oh, our 16th president? And so it's the three major religions. Yeah. Okay. So there are racist attitudes within all three of the Abrahamic religions, but a lot of African Americans continue to push towards the practice of a more inclusive doctrine for each of these. So... What I thought was really cool is that Islam was pretty present in the Harlem Renaissance and mm -hmm. the religion itself was also present in Africa as early as the 8th eighth, eighth century uh, through the trans-Saharan trade. And so it wouldn't have been a total stretch for like African-Americans descended from enslaved Africans who were traditionally Muslim, um, which is pretty interesting. Uh, in addition to that, there were a lot of other forms of spiritualism that were practiced among African Americans during during the Harlem Renaissance. So some of those were religions and philosophies that were inherited again from African ancestry that were like voodoo and Santeria, which both sound fucking fascinating. Santeria so. is a great. That's, that just makes me sing that song. So there's another song. I don't you. practice Santeria. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't kid, have I thought Christmas it was Sandria. And uh, I me too. In the car because my mom loves that song, and I would like sing that. I don't yeah. practice Sangria. <laughs> uh-huh uh-huh and then i was like 22 and i was like oh it's not sangria right okay what the fuck is santeria there were also this is so interesting there were also various forms of judaism that were practiced including orthodox conservative and reformed judaism uh but it was the black hebrew israelites that founded their religious belief system during the early 20th century in the harlem renaissance That's so cool. super cool again something i know very little to zero about there was a lot of criticism in the Harlem Renaissance of religion as well. So, like, it's kind of hard to, like, have this massive intellectual and cultural and social revolution when and then like avoid this whole talking about religion. So it came up throughout music, literature, art, theater, poetry, and ultimately it encouraged this analytic dialogue of like openly critiquing and adjusting the traditional religious ideologies. So like my vibe was kind of like, I, and I don't say this like ironically, but like black Jesus, that's actually what made me think of this. Like, yeah, like this, this next guy, Aaron Douglas was a major contributor to the discussion of uh, African-American Renaissance culture. And in his artwork, he reflected like a, an African-American revision of the Christian dogma. So like to me, that was always that kind of seemed like it wasn't like a bunch of fucking white blonde hair blue eyed people from the middle east like it was biblical imagery that was more reflective and inspiring for like african influence mm -hmm. um there was also a poem called heritage by county cullen and in it cullen expresses the inner struggle of an african-american between his past african heritage and his new christian culture 
And then uh, a more severe criticism of the Christian religion is found in Langston Hughes's poem, Merry Christmas, where he exposes the irony of a religion as a symbol for good and yet a force for oppression and injustice. So in terms of fashion, they're really actually, I was kind of bummed. I was thinking there was going to be like I'm a sorry, lot more. I'm sorry, I just like the like, and a force for oppression and injustice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then in terms of fashion. <laughs> I'm like, the more I'm reading this, the more I'm like, fuck, this shit is like heavy and it's like i don't know <laughs> like it's hard because i'm not a super spiritual person and i personally agree with everything that they criticize yeah same so it's like, oh same it's casual to me i mean honestly i was like yeah and so he was like well satan's black so i want to go there and i was like yeah that's fine oh yeah okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um so yeah in terms of fashion <laughs> uh there really wasn't a lot of like major differences between i would say like black clothing and like white clothing in terms of the 1920s and 30s for the most part young women like started to significantly shift their dress code into having like loose fitted garments and they accessorized with like these like long pearl bead necklaces and feather boas and cigarette holders and like they had these like drop like short skirt and silk stockings and not these like drop waisted dresses and so the fashion was mostly used to convey elegance and flamboyancy and there was also this like element of fashion that was created with like the dance style of the 1920s in mind and by the 1930s it was popular to wear i thought this was fucking cool a trendy egret trimmed beret Ooh. which is literally a beret with a giant swooping feather and mm -hmm. it looks cool as fuck i had yeah. to google it it sounds great um, in my head it's so so cool in terms of men they wore loose suits that led to the later style known as the zoot uh which consisted of wide-legged high-waisted peg top trousers and a long coat with padded shoulders and wide lapels uh they also wore wide-brimmed hats colored socks white gloves and velvet collared chesterfield coats something i thought was very different and unique and i loved this is um a lot of african americans also expressed respect for their like african heritage by using like like the fad leopard skin coats mm -hmm. indicating the power of like the african animal gotcha and then the other person that came up in this section was actually Josephine Baker, who was that super talented um, African-American, or was she? Yeah, she was American, dancer who was a major fashion trendsetter. Yeah. Um, and even though she lived in Paris during the height of the Harlem Renaissance, she was actually a trendsetter for both white and black people, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, her gowns were often copied or emulated, and she's credited with highlighting this like art deco fashion era after she performs something called the Danse Sauvage. Okay. And <laughs> in which she quote adorned a skirt made of string and artificial bananas so she's like og lady Fuck gaga yes. yes absolutely like out here in a meat dress mm -hmm. cool um and then another famous black performer was ethel moses who starred in several different silent films of the 20s and 30s and she was recognizable for her bob hairstyle which is also what motivated other like women of color to have bob hairstyles like her awesome um yeah that's cool. fashion Yeah, so I'm going to talk about some general kind of characteristics and themes of the Harlem Renaissance that, you know, shows up in literature, music, fashion, all these different things we've been talking about. Yeah. And so the basic characteristic, you know, most people associate with the Harlem Renaissance was an idea of overt racial pride um, represented by this idea of the new Negro. Um, and the idea of the new Negro was someone who through intellect and production of literature, art, music, etc. could challenge the racism and stereotypes 
and promote more progressive politics, socialist politics, and social integration between the races. So the idea was basically that the, this new art and literature would like uplift the race. We'll get to some of the criticisms of that because there's some elements of that that aren't great. <laughs> that like which i think is what hubert harrison was saying right like that's not new right. necessarily yeah. like we've always done these things it's that you're listening now yeah to some extent yeah. so we'll talk about the criticism because i don't i don't fully love that classification of it mm -hmm. um but part of the idea was rather than a single viewpoint of the black experience it encompassed a bunch of different styles and elements so you had like a pan-african perspective you had both high and low culture or what they called um low life was was that traditional form of music from the poorer areas um mm -hmm. as well as new and experimental forms new types of literature coming out this idea of jazz poetry and so basically that you were combining all these different kind of factions of the community and it meant that african-american artists sometimes came into conflict with each other um took issues with certain depictions of the black lifestyle so it wasn't about you know, one view of here is what Black people are, but it was just giving all these different types of Black people a vehicle for their cultural, like, cultural elements and their voices. There are obviously some common themes between them, though, right? So the experience of slavery is all throughout this stuff. Um, like I said, from an age perspective, you're looking at people who were born right, in the late 1800s. So their parents right. may have started out enslaved and been emancipated, mm -hmm. um, may have been, you know, young enough that they were born into freedom. It kind of right. could go either way. And so you had these different experiences of slavery coloring all of this stuff. Right. Um, and it also was a lot about kind of emerging folk traditions of Black identity because this was, a, you know, slavery had been going on for hundreds of years. It was kind of new terrain. And so they're looking at the effects of the institutional racism. Um, some things do deal kind of directly with the kind of dichotomy that they were performing and writing for rich white audiences and the question of how to convey that experience, their experience to that audience properly. Right. And with that, like I mentioned before, you know, this is all very black led, but it's also depends pretty heavily on the patronage of white people and both in terms of audiences being white people and sponsors or patrons providing funding and access and so kind of you have that you know the guy you mentioned who wrote a play that really started to open things up you also sometimes had to have you know a white person who would let you use their theater or their venue or who would yeah. sell tickets or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and some of that is coming from like very legitimately a good place of allyship and white people who believed in racial equality or at least thought all of the art was quality enough that it was worth exposing people to. Yeah. Um, there was also the idea that there was whites interested in what they called primitive cultures. And it was oh. kind of a like looky-loo type thing. Right. They Jesus. they wanted to see that. Like, culture. look what black people can do. Yeah. Like, or like, mm -hmm. Ooh, what is black Fucking music going to be like? Exactly. Yeah. And so Ugh. there's some element where people are getting kind of exploited for the publicity. Right. Of, oh, well, we have a black person or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then there's also people who are trying to do the right thing. Like, I always right. think of this wasn't the Harlem Renaissance. It was later. But like that Marilyn Monroe story with um, I think it was Etta James. Do you know that? Ella Fitzgerald. Um, it was Ella Fitzgerald, not Etta James. It was when she would buy the table. Yeah. Was that that one? It was like a club that was white only and they didn't want to let Ella Fitzgerald perform. And Marilyn right. Monroe said, every time she performs, I'll be there. And showed up like every night because they got tabloid publicity. 
for her being yep. there and yeah. Ella Fitzgerald was allowed to perform. So it's like that mm-hmm. kind of vibe of like exploiting your own whiteness to help marginalized people. Right. Um, and there was also a bit of collaborative work at the time, right? So some of those white people that wanted to help worked with the black people. It wasn't always stealing from them. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. they like actively worked together. It must have been so radical for people at the time who were like, oh my God, like white people and black people are working together on some type of yeah. collaborative. Like, I can't imagine how many heads must have fucking exploded which is so stupid weird it's so dumb like it doesn't make any sense no um but the popularity of the work so the fact that like whether you were someone in the camp of like actively trying to help and do good or you were one of the people that was like i want to see it was popular (laughs) and it made money and so it gave black people access to publishing houses and record deals and kind of mainstream channels of art with funding behind them that they didn't have before yeah um So that's like a net positive. Um, There was this notion kind of like, well, actually, I'm going to save that for criticism. Forget that part. Um, (laughs) But, you know, then there's also the Harlem Renaissance kind of laid some of the foundation for later protest movements, the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you're going to talk about the influence of it, but because yeah. of the the kind of heavy political themes in some of it mm-hmm. that are characteristic of the different types of art, the people that were born out of it or inspired by it go on to carry that political like radicalism into other areas. Right. And so those are some of the, the main characteristics and themes. Obviously, like I said, there's a bunch of different stuff in there, right? People's poems and art wasn't all the same. But those are some of the things that tie it together. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually a really good like segue into like the influence. The Harlem Renaissance is obviously successful enough that we're like able to learn about it and talk about it. But it is important in that it brings the black experience clearly within the mainstream American cultural history. And that's kind of like what you were saying. It's not saying that. I mean, we we know that like black culture existed prior to white recognition of it but it was this time period that there was significant mainstream recognition right um which is what makes it so i guess significant it was like in explosion of culture and like sociology and society and it kind of redefined how america viewed african americans specifically so again that's i mean that can be a problematic statement in like you know that they didn't exist beforehand and now they do but I think a lot of scholars will agree that like it's it's not just Americans who began to view African-Americans differently, but like the world itself, which I think is pretty significant. Scholars also agree that the great migration of Southern African-Americans to the North ultimately changed the image of the African-American from this like, quote unquote, rural, uneducated peasant to like a more urban cosmopolitan or like sophisticated, I guess, citizen, which led to a greater social consciousness. And it. According to them, it essentially gave African-Americans an opportunity to become players on the world stage, expanding their intellectual and social contacts um, like internationally. The progress, both figuratively and literally during this period, became a point of reference from which the African-American community gained a spirit of what is like self-determination, which provides this growing sense of black um, urbanity and black militancy, which is, again, like what lays the foundation for the civil rights movement um, in the 1950s and 60s. The urban set, uh, the urban setting of rapidly developing Harlem also provides a venue for African-Americans of all backgrounds to appreciate the variety of black life and culture 
And through this expression, the Harlem, Harlem Renaissance encourages like a new appreciation of folk roots and culture. So, for example, like folk materials and spirituals be can to like be provided and they kind of they created like a rich source for the artistic and intellectual imagination to like work off of. Um, so it wasn't necessarily just like, you know, that these folk songs or folk, you know, stories didn't exist, but it brought them out into a mainstream place that people then could take those, you know, similar experiences or different experiences from what they had heard growing up and create something new with it. Which is actually really similar to like that idea of like pan-Africanism that you mentioned. Right. So like creating that united racial identity. Mm-hmm. The most interesting thing I think I found was this like whole bit about queer culture, which I wanted to kind of just touch on and, and sort of end yeah. my segments on. So there was some pressure within certain groups of the Harlem Renaissance to adopt sentiments of conservative white America in order to be taken seriously by the mainstream. So really similar to what you were saying, actually, with like having like you're not radical enough kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So the results of this whole like we got to tone it down for the white people so that we way we can like, you know, be played on the radio or whatever. Yeah. The result was that queer culture, even though it was way more accepted in Harlem than most places in the country at the time, was pretty much fully lived out in like the most low key areas of the city. Right. So like venues like bars, nightclubs, cabarets that were like open super late like the blues music scene boomed because of it um and it's interesting because like the the whole idea of this like illegal like gayness basically is <laughs> like so funny. no no that's it's so absurd i just listened to another podcast actually that was talking about it's called you're wrong about have oh, you ever listened to I it love you're wrong about yeah it's excellent i just listened to the kitty genevieve one or yes. Genesis, whatever and they're talking about like how being gay was like illegal and like all the shit so Mm -hmm. it's interesting because like there were some factions within the harlem renaissance that were totally accepting of queer culture and lifestyles but it was still common for people to be arrested for engaging in homosexual acts which then a lot of scholars kind of argue that people were worried that if too many black people were like arrested for engaging in this type of behavior it would like push their their achievements or movements back. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were some famous people that fell into this category at the time. So Alice uh, Dunbar Nelson and the woman, a woman named the mother of blues, Gertrude Ma Rainey, were both women who had husbands and were also romantically linked to other women throughout their careers. Okay. Get, Ma Rainey was actually, I know it's fucking cool as hell. So Ma Rainey was known to dress in traditionally male clothing and her blues lyrics often reflected her sexual, like, um, desire for women which was super radical at the time um and she was also the first person to introduce blues music into vaudeville so she was like pretty significant i wonder because that movie just came out about her i wonder if that's i know i really want to that you said um that and shit what's her name um billy holiday holiday i almost said billy elliot i almost oh my god i'm gonna punch myself in the throat later Mm -hmm. um (laughs) i can't anyone more opposite of everything we're talking about no maybe other than the Lewis from one direction you said or Billy Louis Elliot from- and my thought was do you mean Billy Eilish so- oh my god I did mean Billy Eilish oh my god wait <laughs> Billy Elliot's a Billy thing Elliot's too though Billy Elliot's a little kid that dances yeah <laughs> oh my god I hate myself so much <laughs> holy shit it's, this is I'm actually really hungry I think my I'm like dropping here oh. um <laughs> so uh, Ma Rainey's protege Bessie Smith was another artist who used the blues as a way to express herself um, she had lines such as quote 
When you see two women walking hand in hand, just look them over and try to understand. They'll go to those parties, have the lights down low. Only those parties where women can go. Like, just ignore the lesbians that you see holding hands. Like, they're not going to fucking hurt you. Let them live. (laughs) Gladys Bentley was another notable blues singer. Uh, She was also known to cross-dress. And she was the club owner of the Clam House on 133rd Street in Harlem, which was a huge place for queer patrons to attend. Um, There was also the Hamilton Lodge in Harlem, which hosted an annual drag ball that attracted thousands of people to watch as, like, a couple hundred young men came to dance the night away and drag, which is like one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were also a lot of safe havens within Harlem, like as well as like prominent voices. Uh, there was actually the minister. This is, this is really interesting. Um, Adam Clayton was the Ab- Abyssinian. Oh fuck. That word came back. Oh yeah. Abyssinian Baptist church minister who was actively campaigning against homosexuality and Yet, I think I saw something that the church itself was often used as, like, a safe haven. Okay. But I'm not totally sure, like, the, the like, real out, like reality right, of that. Right, like, what that means. Like, yeah, exactly. So, the Harlem Renaissance, in essence, gave birth to this idea of the new Negro, this movement, like, where the effort was to define what it meant to be African-American by African-Americans, rather than the degrading stereotypes and caricatures that were found throughout i mean fucking years of blackface you know minstrel shows shit like that uh there was also the neo new negro movement which is like the scariest sentence i've ever said um i was just like my god what if i said something totally fucking wrong i thought so so it's neo new negro the neo new negro movement yeah the new new the new new yep (laughs) Um, which basically changed racial t- definitions and stereotypes and sought to challenge different gender roles, normative sexuality, and sexism in America in general. Okay. So I think this was like a little further along than in the Harlem Renaissance. So like this basically was like a time where the Harlem Renaissance was way ahead of the rest of America in terms of embracing feminism and queer culture. But the ideals did receive some pushback as freedom of sexuality, particularly pertaining to women, which during the time in Harlem was known as woman loving woman was seen as confirming the stereotypes that black women were loose and lacked sexual like control, which is again, why like they saw this as hampering the cause of black people in America um, in some cases. And they thought it would like just fuel the fire of racist assholes about like saying, look, black people can't control themselves sexually. Um, But the author of The Black Man's Burden, Henry Louis Gates Jr., wrote that the Harlem Renaissance, quote, was surely as gay as it was black. Okay. Love quote. that for me. And that's where I want to uh, end what I have to say, because I thought that was just too good. Yeah. Okay. So I will go from that to criticism. Perfect. <laughs> um, and so the first thing I mentioned... I kind of touched on this before, but there was this notion of the idea of the talented 10th, it was called. And so a quote about that was the Negro race, like all races, is going to be saved by its exceptional men. The problem of education then among Negroes must first of all deal with the talented 10th. It is the problem of developing the best of this race that they may guide the mass away from the contamination and death of the worst. And so it's kind of Hmm. this idea of, like, a, quote, good black person is how it feels, right? Like, it feels very, like, you have to be a certain way, kind of respectability politics. 
of if you can act a certain way, you'll be accepted. Yeah, it's um shit. Fuck, I should know this. What is this called? Like coding. Yes, exactly. Right? Okay, okay. Yep. Yeah. And so there were people very prominent in the movement who were like very kind of invested in this idea. Mm-hmm. And then there were people who were more critical of it. Some of that came later. I think at the time there wasn't a lot of that because it's also it's almost like a better than nothing type thing, right? If that's yeah. how you take your first step, then is by saying only a tenth of us are good at anything. Right. I guess that's a tenth better, but it's this weird kind of fraught notion. And yeah. it kind of goes into a lot of the critics after the fact are that the Harlem Renaissance basically couldn't escape its history and its culture by by creating a new one. Like it thought that it was always intrinsically tied to like the foundational white european culture so do you mean like they like the harlem renaissance was never not going to be so it was kind of one of two it It was like either you are mimicking in some way white culture Mm -hmm. or you're directly doing the opposite opposite okay but either way it's it's like kind of rooted in it yep yeah exactly um and so you know it's like a lot of the intellectuals at the time who were talking about and explicitly shooting for a racial consciousness were basically mimicking their white counterparts is how some people see it, right? That they were adopting their clothing, sophisticated manners and etiquette that by becoming the elites, they were kind of being whitewashed. I, again, I'm just reading what people say, right, um, right. but you know, the mimicry was a form of assimilation. Right, that they were trying to fit the social norm and the majority, and that some people say that wasn't actually progress. Right, it was black people acting like white people to get some of the privileges. Ugh, and it's so shitty because yeah. like black people have their own fucking culture, and they have always had their own culture, and it was fucking ripped away from Europe by by Europeans. So yes. like, it's so ridiculous because like I totally get it, but yeah. at the same time, it's like. And it's it's like when you talk about some of the success, because even these critics say, you know, the concept of the new Negro was a success, but that's because the goal was to put, was to make a black person equal to a white person, not in like mm-hmm. a, a philosophical way, but in a social way. Yeah. And so, but even think about it being called the new Negro. Right. Yeah. It's kind of it, accepting an idea that like there was a bad form. Of yes. being black. And now we're, they're like and now reborn, we're which is what Renaissance actually means. Yeah. So that's exactly mm, and interesting. It, yeah. Like I said before, it relied really heavily on like white publishing houses, white owned magazines, and the mainstreaming of some of this art that had not previously been mainstream. But then at the same time, that's how they got like economic power. Right. And so it's kind of a chicken egg situation. Um, right. Yeah. But i don't know i don't know there's no answer um and even you know some of the clubs that these black musicians would play in were exclusively for white audiences so Mm -hmm. even though maybe that person is doing well like duke ellington for example really often performed somewhere somewhere called the cotton club um which was a famous like white only nightclub in harlem I fucking hate that. Yeah, dislike. And so he was doing well and making money, but it was still this segregated audience. But the people who appeared at the white-only clubs 
became way more successful and are the ones whose names we know. Yeah. Right. So I don't, I don't know the answer on all that. Um, and then again, like I mentioned, one of the reasons they are successful is they're made out as kind of exotic or different or something new to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore some people saw it as a form of minstrelry, right? Like you're performing for them. You're performing blackness for them. Yes. Um, yeah. Which like, that's such a valid fucking argument. Yeah. Like, and so yeah. like Langston Hughes said at one point that he knew, you know, works authored by black people were placed in similar fashion to quote oriental at the time or like mm-hmm. foreign origin, you know, used in comparison to white counterparts. And that once a spot for black work was taken, they kind of had to look elsewhere. So they were being published, yeah. but it was as a token or as a like display of something. Yeah. Um, let's see. And that's, yeah, at the time, a lot of this was accepted without debate. It came later. Um, and then the other, the last kind of piece was that at the time, there's this idea of the new Negro and they feel it's very successful and they see some progressive, like, cultural steps happening. Um, but it rendered black intellectuals, just like their white counterparts, pretty unprepared for the Great Depression. Um, And that it ended abruptly, some people say, because of, quote, naive assumptions about the centrality of culture unrelated to economics. So basically, like, there was this progress made where the culture was merged a little bit more and it was it was more accepted and then economics became an issue and everyone was like fuck it never mind like i don't care if i like your song right it's about yeah. like money and social realities now yeah and that kind of backtracked some of it so there's not i mean i'm sure there is criticism of the like materials themselves but for the most part the criticism i could find was like hey good stuff came out of this but it wasn't as radical as it sounds Mm -hmm. Um, it was based somewhat on internalized racism and appealing to like the white mainstream. Yeah. And I think now that like having gone through it together, like there definitely feels like a tokenization of this. Yeah. Like when I think about what I learned about the Harlem Renaissance, it was probably like three days and we talked about like music and like people listen to black people now. And like, that was like pretty much like all that was discussed. And there was never the nuances of like, but how could we look at this as being just another example of like white privilege, you know, like yeah. that, like who, who called it the Harlem Renaissance white people. Right. Right. You know, so. Woo. Right. That was a, that was a heavy hitter, man. It was. Like, that was also long. I'm pretty sure. Oops. It was super long. And I definitely went on some like major rants that, I mean, I don't regret for a no, second. They were but, all right and accurate and perfect. I'm yeah. Sure. So I am. I am perfect. So yeah. no, just kidding. Uh, all right, folks, listen, go do your fucking work, especially if you're white. Uh-huh. Specifically if you're white. Right, mostly uh, then. Mostly then. Um, uplift black voices. Mm-hmm. Don't talk over them. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to What the History. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WT History Pod. 
If you'd like to email us, you can do that at wthistorypodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear feedback or episode ideas or anything else you have to say. You can support us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash wthistorypodcast and get exclusive access to even more nerdy stuff. Don't forget to tune in every Thursday when new episodes are released, and we will see you next time.